1978, Mario Rubio discovered Jesus. Well, he discovered the face of Jesus on his tortilla. Um, It's not real clear. That's why he sort of had to draw around to see where it was. Fred Wan discovered Jesus on a fish stick. And then Fred kept Jesus in the freezer for three months and then tried to sell him on eBay. One fellow from England, or actually this is Jesus on the Texas tailgate, although some people say that that's Kurt Cobain. There's a bit of an argument there. One fellow from England discovered Jesus in the froth on his beer mug. Renee found Jesus in the middle of a rotten potato. I don't know if you can see it there. There's a little Jesus on the cross. Claire discovered Jesus in her marmite lid at breakfast time. Can you actually see any of these faces in any of these? No, you can't. Linda discovered Jesus in cheese on toast that her boyfriend cooked. And this one's my favourite. Last year, James from England discovered Jesus in the hole in his sock. I don't know, do you ever wonder if these people might be looking for God in the wrong places? I wonder if we're much different, though. We might not go looking for God in spaghetti bolognese or burnt toast. But I wonder whether sometimes we think that God is only at work in the spectacular. God is only at work in the miraculous. The rest of the time he's just kind of taking a break. Well, today we begin a three-week series in the book of Esther. And if there's one lesson to learn from the book of Esther, it is that God is at work in all of life. Now, that's a fitting lesson from the book of Esther because the book of Esther doesn't actually mention God at all. His name doesn't come up, there's no prayers, there's no obvious miracles. So what a lesson to get from the book of Esther, that God is at work in the ordinary stuff of life. I think sometimes we can think that God is up there and then every now and then in response to a prayer or he just might wake up and notice something's going on and poke his finger down and fix something up. That's not the Bible's view. According to the Bible, God is at work in everything to bring about his purposes. All the stuff that's going on around us. So if you've ever asked questions like, why is God letting this happen? Or where is God in this? Then pay attention to the book of Esther because it shows us that God is at work even when we can't see what he's doing. So let's pick up Esther chapter 1, verse 1. It's a good little read, isn't it? I'd encourage you that we can't read the whole book of Esther in the next three weeks, so read it at home. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. The book of Esther is written by in the time of King Xerxes. He's a Persian king. You can go and look him up in the history books. It was about 500 BC, 500 years before Jesus. Now, in terms of the Bible story, that's after God's people, the Israelites, are kicked out of the promised land after Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. And so God's people are scattered everywhere. Some of them have gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, but some of them are still living here in a place called Susa under the Persian king Xerxes. So this was a time when powerful kings really liked to show off how powerful they were. Uh, You read the history books, there's all sorts of stunts they did. King Xerxes was no exception. He throws a party here for all the rich people firstly that goes for six months and then there's a party for all the poor people that goes for seven days. But really everyone gets to see the splendour of King Xerxes. So verse 3. In the third year of his reign, 
He gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present, all the, anyone who's everyone. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of his glory and majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Remember, he's doing this to show off, and that's what happens in the next few verses. It describes all the splendor of the decorations. In verse 6, it says the lounge chairs were made of gold. In verse 7, it says the wine is served in goblets. There is as much wine as people want to drink. There's that funny phrase in verse 8, which they have real trouble translating. It says in the NIV, the one we have, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink his own way. The NASB Bible says the drinking was done according to the law that there was no compulsion. In other words, the king has made a new law for the drinking rules at the party. Now, we know from history, not the Bible, that in those days at a Persian banquet, the rule was you had to keep up with the king. That was one way for the king to show how good he was. Whatever the king could drink, you had to keep up with him and the king would be the last one standing, the best drinker, the best man. So when King Xerxes here makes a law that his guests can drink as they want to. They don't have to keep up with him. In other words, King Xerxes is so good, he's saying, don't bother trying to keep up with me. You can't outdrink me. Just drink what you want. Okay? Everything in this chapter is about showing off, including the next bit. On the seventh day, verse 10, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. King Xerxes is in a wine-induced good mood. He showed off his gold. He showed off his wine. What's left to show off? His woman, his wife. He decides to bring out Queen Vashti simply to show off her beauty. She doesn't want to be his trophy wife, so she refuses to be put out on parade. Verse 12, but when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Queen Vashti, in front of all the guests who he wants to show off to, has refused to come. How dare she? Who does she think she is? King Xerxes, he completely loses it. His response is totally over the top. He doesn't just go in and have a little chat to Queen Vashti. He brings in all the lawyers, the best lawyers from the land, and he goes straight to litigation. Righto, let's make a new law. Verse 15. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. And so all the lawyers tell King Xerxes exactly what he wants to hear. Now, I think that's what you tell King Xerxes, exactly what he wants to hear. If you don't, look out. So verse 16, they say the answer he wants. Then Mamushin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's command will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. 
Verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone who is better than she. And so it happens. And in chapter 2, King Xerxes sobers up and there's a problem. He doesn't have a queen anymore. And so his advisors make him a suggestion in chapter 2. And again, it seems their job to tell King Xerxes exactly what he wants to hear. Verse 2. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Verse 3. Let beauty treatments be given to them. Verse 4. Then let the girl who pleased the king be queen instead of Vashti. What does the king think? Well, this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. And so Esther 2 is a beauty contest to find another wife for King Xerxes. Now, what kind of woman are we looking for? Well, the phrase was back in chapter 1, verse 19, someone who is better than Vashti, better than the old queen. What was wrong with the old queen? Well, it's not that there was some kind of moral flaw in it. Better than Queen Vashti doesn't mean more loving than Queen Vashti or a better cook than Queen Vashti. No, it means someone who'll do exactly what she's told. It means someone who will be happy to be paraded out in front of a group of drunk men and won't make a fuss. And of course, as well as that, she needs to be good looking. So that's why they say, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. So Esther 2 is farmer wants a wife meets Australia's next top model. We are looking for the new Queen Vashti. And it's like that. They've got the rules down in verse 12. The most beautiful looking virgins are collected together. They will be given beauty treatments for 12 months. And then they'll be taken into the king for one night to see who can please him. Well, one of the girls who gets recruited in the beauty contest is a girl called Esther. We meet her in verse 7. She's being cared by cared for by her uncle Mordecai, who's a Jew, which makes her Jewish too. Verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he'd brought up because she had neither father or mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. Esther is Jewish, which means she's one of God's people. She's also good-looking, lovely in form and features, or more literally, as the NASB puts it, she has a nice body and a nice face, nice curves and a pretty face. It's interesting, Esther is not introduced as a godly woman, a prayerful woman. There's no real hint as to whether this is a good thing for Esther or a bad thing, whether this is some plan of God or not. It's just Esther is a stunner and she's going well in the beauty contest. Verse 9. The girl pleased him. This is the guy running the contest, not the king. And won his favour. Immediately he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Now that little word there, verse 9, special food, 
That's the same word that comes up back in the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 1. Go and read it up um, during the week. Daniel is in a very similar situation to Esther. It's only a few years earlier. Daniel's a Jewish man. He's being kind of fattened up to enter the king's service. Nebuchadnezzar, an earlier king. But what does he do when he's offered special food from the king? He refuses to eat it because as a Jew it would defile him. Go and read about it in Daniel 1. There's no such stand from Esther here. Is this bad? We're not told. That's the thing about Esther. It's kind of very ambiguous. She eats the food without complaint. She even keeps it a secret that she's a Jew, the exact opposite of what Daniel was praised for. But even then, it's hard to know if that's a good thing because she's obeying her uncle Mordecai, it says, or whether it's a bad thing because she's just ashamed and not owning up to being a follower of God questions anyway verse 15 her night comes when the turn came for esther the girl mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle abihail to go to the king she asked for nothing other than what hegai the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem suggested and esther won the favor of everyone who saw her verse 17 now the king was attracted to esther more than any of the other women and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins so he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti Esther without complaint does exactly what she's told so it seems she is the perfect replacement for Queen Vashti do what she's told she's just slept with an uncircumcised pagan king That would have been an appalling thing for a young Jewish girl to do. She doesn't seem to put up any fuss about it. Again, we're not told whether Esther is enjoying all this fame or whether she's hating it. We're just told that it happens. Esther is now the new queen. I can't help wonder, though, if at this point Esther is not so much the heroine of the story, but simply a girl who's doing whatever she can to keep out of trouble. In fact, the Jews themselves had great problems at this point with the book of Esther. The book of Esther was so offensive to them, the idea that this young Jewish girl would do this, that one or two hundred years after Esther was written, they added some extra chapters in. It's not in the Jewish Bible anymore. Um, It's in what they call the LXX, which is a, a, a sort of translation of it. So all the old Bibles don't have it. None of our Bibles have it. None of the Bibles of any of the churches have it. But it was kind of added in to sort of soften up the message of Esther and make it look a bit better. Now, in the extra chapter, they throw in a prayer from Esther to try and make her look good. This is how it goes. Esther to God, Thou knowest all things, and that I abhor the couch of the uncircumcised. Thou knowest my necessity. I abhor the symbol of my proud station. I abhor it as a menstruous cloth. Thy handmaid has not eaten at the table of Haman. I have not honoured the banquet of the king. Neither have I drunk the wine of libations. Neither has thy handmaid rejoiced since the day of my promotion. Now, no, that's not in the book of Esther. But about a couple, 200 years after Esther, someone added this chapter in as a proposal for perhaps what Esther would have been thinking. But the point is, that's not the way Esther's written, is it? Chapters 1 and 2 of Esther are at best ambiguous, which means we, we, we simply can't work out, is Esther doing something good here or bad? We don't know. Nothing's said about her motivations. 
She's introduced as simply a girl with a pretty face and a good-looking body. She's now King Xerxes' new queen. Not a great place to be and not a great way that she came to be there. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers who actually started the Lutheran church, he says of the book of Esther, I'm so hostile to this book, I wish it didn't exist. It is so full of heathen perverseness. It is a great little story, though, although it maybe does sound a bit more like a Milton Boone novel. What's it got to do with God? There's no mention of God. What's it got? Why is it in the Bible? Well, of course, we need to read on, and next week we will. And next week, in the very next chapter, in chapter 3, there is a problem that arises that will threaten the, the existence of God's people. And then by the end of the book of Esther, everything is worked out for good. And part of that rescue plan that God will bring about is that Esther needs to be queen, and Mordecai, her uncle, his name needs to be written in a certain book. That's what happens right at the end of chapter 2. Have a little look. It just says that Mordecai did something and his name was written in a book. Chapter 1 and 2 of Esther. Esther doesn't know what's going on. Mordecai may not know what's going on. But God is starting to put in place the solution to a problem that hasn't even arisen. The problem will arise in chapter 3. So I think the point of Esther chapter 1 and 2 is that God can work through a drunken king. God can work through a beauty contest. God can work in a situation where it looks like he's not there. God can work through all that to solve a problem that hasn't even arisen yet. We don't find the problem till next week. This is all about God's sovereignty, that God is in control. And at that point, we are tapping into a really big idea that runs all through the Bible. That God is a God who is always at work in all things for the good of his people, even when things seem out of control. And not just the miraculous and the spectacular like Moses and the Red Sea, the ordinary stuff of life, booze-ups and beauty shows. God is at work in everything. Now, of course, we see that most clearly in Jesus, don't we? If we step back from just the book of Esther and look at the story of the whole Bible, we find a similar story. We find an even bigger rescue, which is from our sin. And even before the problem of sin enters the world, God had a plan in place to solve that. That plan is Jesus. Jesus died in our place to take our wrong on himself once for all, he fixed our problem by paying the price to set us free from God. And once you understand that, once you see that the whole Bible, not just Esther, is pointing to God and his rescue of us and he's in control of everything, well, that changes the way you view everything. Romans 8.28, it's a verse some of you may know. Have a, have a look up if you want. We'll leave Esther for now. Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28, I think, is a great verse that gives us perspective and helps us understand Esther. It's easy to look at Esther from the viewpoint of Romans 8. Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Those verses are saying that we know, this side of what Jesus has done, that in all things, God is working 
for the good of his people. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes my life feels a little bit like Esther 1 and 2. Not that I'm good-looking winning a beauty contest. It feels like my life is out of control. It feels like there's stuff pushing in from the outside, choices that are put upon me that I wouldn't make, things that are bigger than me. I'm not sure what Esther was thinking in Esther 2 when she was made queen, married to this crazy king who has just dethroned the queen before her. But it doesn't seem like Esther understood everything that was going on. Esther 1 and 2 shows us that God is in control, even in the ambiguities of life. Romans 8 tells us that even if we don't know all the details, God knows and he knows where things are going. And he's at work in all things to make us more like Jesus. I think that's the lesson from Esther 1 and 2. We don't need to know all the details. We just need to know that in everything, God is at work. And it's not just that God works through our good moments and our successes. God even works through our failures. See, step outside the book of Esther and you see God work in all kinds of other messes. God works through prostitutes. God works through kings who commit adultery. God works through people, disciples that deny that they even know him. God works through leaders like Paul and um, Barnabas who argue and split up. Even when it seems that God is not there or that we have failed him, God is at work in everything. Now look, that doesn't mean just do what you want. That doesn't mean go, mess up your life, God will work through it, although he will. Of course God wants us to love him. Of course God wants us to be obedient to him and through that to glorify him. But even when we fail, God uses our mistakes for his good. And no matter how out of control your life gets, things are never outside God's control. What is it that you don't understand at the moment? What part of your life do you just not get? What do you worry about? Maybe you don't have to work it out. Maybe God just wants you to know that he is God. And he's got it sorted. And if, if you're a follower of Jesus, God promises, promises you that he is working out all things for your good. So, you don't have to go looking for Jesus in tortillas or fish sticks. He's actually at work in your life right now. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he's working for your good. Daryl's going to come and pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we see you and meet you in your word today. And Lord, sometimes we don't understand um, what you're telling us. But Lord, we know that um, you are in control of all things and that you're a constant and a faithful God. And Lord, help us to seek and to work hard at understanding what it is that you're saying to us through your word. We thank you for Wayne for explaining it to us this morning. But Lord, we want to thank you for the great message that um, 
that you are in control, that you are a God of a sovereign over all things, and that you work in each of our lives. Lord, what a great privilege it is if we've given our life to you, Lord, that you are working our lives for the good of our lives, but Lord, importantly, for your glory. So, Father, today, let us rejoice in that. Let us take comfort even when things aren't going as we might seem, even when things are hard or things look totally weird or even really bad, that, Lord, you will look after us, that you will work for our good, that, Lord, you will work for your glory and all things will work out as you would have them. And Father, as we finish today, we just thank you for working in our lives and as we grow more and more like your son Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.